absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're here to help each other stretch toward God's calling because we want to have faith. We want to be people of faith. We want to share the joy of faith because we know that having absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God is a great place to rest our souls and to find peace in the midst of the storms of this life. I'm so glad you've joined us here on the program today. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're in Southwest Florida, a place where it's warm even this time of year. 85 is not unusual for us. But our warmth today is not about the temperature. It's not about the weather. Our warmth today is about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we can have faith in God. We can have absolute confidence that he is trustworthy. Again, I'm so glad you've joined us today. And I want to talk about several things. We've got a lot ahead of us today. I'm not sure whether I can even shepherd our time well enough to cover all of it as well as I'd like to. But we're going to give it a shot. If we need to circle back to some of it another time, we will do that. That's just kind of the way it is. I don't script these programs. I just take them as an opportunity to talk. And so I talk out some of these things while you're kind enough to listen. And the idea, I hope, comes across is that we can think about these things together. And as we consider what God is up to in our world, we can think God's thoughts with him. That's part of what we want to do today is think God's thoughts with him. And we'll get to that a little later when I want to talk to us about, could we actually become icons for Jesus? Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Some very interesting things in the Bible about that. And as we look at how the Bible meets our world, it makes a lot of sense. I also want to talk about the Bible story. Now, a lot of times you will hear people like me, and I do it regularly, and I probably will keep doing it. I regularly say to people, learn the stories in the Bible. There are a lot of great stories in the Bible, and it's very helpful for us to know the Bible stories. And so I don't have any reluctance to encourage you, to encourage anyone, to learn the stories of the Bible. However, comma, as one of my friends would say, We also need to remember that the Bible is a story itself. It tells a story from the beginning to the end. And I sometimes think that we don't connect the dots in that story well enough. And so I want to try today to do something that you really can't do in a format like this very well. But I'm going to try, and you're going to help me, I hope. I'm going to try to to make sense of the story of the Bible in the big picture sense. Well, you hang on for that. We're going to talk about that. I think it'll make sense, and I think it'll help some of us begin to think about the Bible in both fresh ways, but it'll begin to make a little more sense to us as well. But I want to start by talking about something that I do as a part of my ministry that people don't always know about. I don't talk a lot about it. I'm not sure. I might have made reference to it before on the program, but I'm really not sure I have. I've focused on other things, but it really fits with the story of the Bible we want to talk about today, and it also fits with the importance of our times. And so I wanted to talk about a little a little bit about what I've been up to last week and and help you understand what you maybe could do to be dare I say it, salt and light in the world. Well, that's getting ahead of us. We're going to talk about that salt and light. 
But several years ago, oh, 10 years or so ago, I helped start an organization called the Florida Citizens Alliance. We are a not-for-profit organization. We work strictly in one area of uh, public policy. We work to improve K through 12 education in our Florida public schools. And so we have focused on how we could bring solutions to the problems that parents bring to us, other people bring to us that we observe on our own. How could we bring solutions to the problems? Now that's very important, it's very important to me. I remember when we first talked about that and I brought it up to reinforce it. I think we were already in that direction, but I, I wanted to make sure those of us who were working on this new organization were committed to that. And that's the idea of solutions. We don't wanna complain about things. There are lots of complainers out there. We wanna be the people who when we see a problem, we figure out how to solve it. So when we go to decision makers, whether it's school board members or school superintendents or principals, that we can say to them, here's the problem we've become aware of. Here's what we think needs to be done to solve it. We don't pretend that our solution is always the best one, the correct one or anything like that. There might be better ways of doing it. And we're happy to work with people to come up with the best way but we want to always be faithful to our ideal that we will bring a solution and encourage people to pursue a solution to the problem. And if they need a starting place, here's our solution to solve the problem. Well, we started working way back when Common Core was a very hot topic in Florida. You may or may not remember that, depending on whether you've had association with public schools, but in some places Common Core is still a reality. But in Florida, parents all across the state were just outraged by their children not getting the kind of education they thought they should. And they blamed, whether rightly or wrongly, and I know we could go down that trail a little bit as well, they blamed Common Core. Well, Common Core was a lot of things. And so we began to work on trying to bring solutions to that problem. We started just because we started. We had no idea really what to do, but we knew that this would have to start with our state leaders in Tallahassee. And the only place we knew to start, and I'm telling you, we were so new at this, we were just starting. We, we were just doing what we could think of, of to do. That was all we could do. And we started meeting with legislators. We would go to Tallahassee and meet with members of the Florida House and members of the Florida Senate, and we would talk about Common Core. Well, we've continued that practice over time, partly because of our efforts. Common Core is no more in Florida. The governor issued an executive order a few years ago, and the Florida Department of Education took about a year to develop new standards to replace Common Core, and they were, by all accounts, the best in the nation, or at least among the best. I guess it depends who you, who you talk to, whether they're the best. Of course, we in Florida think they're the best. But that has replaced, to a large extent, the Common Core standards. Not 100% because there are still some other areas that need attention, but by and large, we're moving away from that, and that's a big step in the right direction. There are other things that we need to do, and we've been continually working on that, supporting legislation, uh, going to court in a few cases. The one case in particular, we had to go to court and file a lawsuit because of the way a school district behaved, and, and we won that lawsuit, and it went from the local to the appellate court all the way to the Florida Supreme Court. We lost at the local level. We won at the appellate level, and the Supreme Court affirmed the appellate decision without hearing the case, and so we have a Supreme Court decision 
uh, Supreme Court opinion supporting our desire for open conversation or adherence to what we call in Florida the Sunshine Law. I don't want to get too deep into that because, well, because I think you understand why. We just don't want to get into those details. Well, some people wonder what a, a pastor is doing involved in these kinds of things, and and I see my role as being part of the community. Part of our responsibility is to make sure we have the best things for our children, and our children go to school. I'm sure you're aware of that. So one of the concerns that I have and a lot of other people have is that our schools be good places for our kids. And yet we know there are some forces at work that are trying to make that not such a kid-friendly place. It's not because of teachers. By and large, we think the teachers are are caught up in this stuff too and by forces beyond their control. So we're, we're not focused on that. I have teachers in my church. I have confidence in them. I want to help them have a better situation. And so we're involved in these kind of things. And people say, well, that's politics because you're going to talk to senators. You're going to talk to members of the Florida House. And I want to remind you, I know we've talked about this, that politics is the legitimate pursuit of power. Somebody has to be in, de- in a decision-making responsibility. That's power. You get to decide. In the case of a member of the House or Senate in Florida, you can file a bill. And maybe if you can persuade everybody to vote for it, it can become law. That's a level of power. Nothing wrong with that. We need people to do that. I'm not that guy. I don't want to do that. I prefer to work in the area of citizenship. And I understand citizenship, and I hope you agree that citizenship is the pursuit of the best government, or sometimes I say the pursuit of righteous government, because we want the best decisions made by our lawmakers, our administrators in government, that will help people have the best life possible. So I bring all that up to say that this past week, and and for a little bit more than that, we've been working on an idea that finally has come to the Florida House of Representatives. We have confidence it will be filed soon. Maybe it'll be filed by the time you listen to this, a a bill in the Senate as well, to establish education savings accounts in Florida. That's a huge step toward giving parents a choice in where their children go to school. I've said for a while, it's amazing that we allow our parents to choose which dentist they take their child to visit Why shouldn't we allow them to choose the teacher that they spend hours with every day? So we've been advocating for that, and we have high hopes that it will become good legislation. We think there are some improvements improvements necessary to the current bill. That's that's not too unusual. It's quite a process for a bill to get through the House and Senate, and we're working on that and other things. But I kind of wanted you to be aware of that because, well, you could do some of those kind of things in your own community. And I know a lot of times Christians think, oh, that's politics, that's messy, I shouldn't be involved in that. On the contrary, if you aren't involved in it, do you know who will be? Only the people who do not have good intent. And we need good, solid, faithful followers of Jesus involved in that process, both as elected decision makers and as advocates like me, who bring solutions to the problems and encourage them to pursue those solutions. So I'll let you know how this goes. Maybe I'll talk a little little bit more about it, but this is a huge step in the right direction in Florida, and we're really excited about what can come of this. We're really eager to help make this bill in its current form better, and we're really eager to see how it can help 
parents find the best educational opportunity for their children. We think that's really significant. We want to help them do that. So that's something that I'm involved in, and it's really a function of being salt and light in the world. And we'll get to salt and light in the world a little bit more. But now let's shift gears and let's think about this idea of the Bible as a story. It's the year of the Bible at our church. You've heard me talk about that. We are emphasizing the Bible, encouraging people to read the Bible or listen to the Bible. Maybe you want to listen to the Bible and make sure you get it all listened to within a year. Maybe you want to read the Bible through in a year. That's a great discipline to do. I'd encourage you to do that. But the Bible doesn't mandate any particular approach. It really tells us that we need God's words to us, in us, so that they inform our lives and we make good decisions. We make decisions that are representative of followers of Jesus. So however you want to process the Bible, you find a way to make it a part of your life. Maybe you want to read the Gospels repeatedly. That's a great way to do it. Maybe you're familiar with them. You want to pick another book of the Bible and, and really concentrate on that for a period of months or maybe the whole year. Maybe you have never listened to the Bible, so you're going to listen to it as a different way of allowing God to speak to you. However you want to do it, I want to encourage you to do it. But as you do it, I want to help all of us understand what God is saying in the Bible and how we can help, how we can help each other think about it and, and make sense of it. So I've been trying to think, how do I learn about things best? How do I appreciate when something new is presented to me? How do I appreciate that teacher who helps me understand? And, and the way I have found best, it helps me best over time, and it doesn't happen often, but I appreciate it when, when I'm given a big framework for, for an idea or a subject matter, or in this case, the story of the Bible, a big framework that I can then fit other things into that help me make sense, not just of the individual story or individual piece of that discipline, that area of study, but, I, but it helps me, make, helps me make sense of the whole. So what I thought we would do is we'd try something that's impossible to do in this type of setting, but if you'll help me, and if you'll think along with me, I think we can at least take a stab at it, and we can begin to take some steps at helping us understand the story of the Bible. The Bible, yes, is a collection of Bible stories, but it's also a story in its own right. It's a comprehensive story of what God is up to in our world, what he has been up to and what he is still up to, and, and how it will come to conclusion. So, the easy place to start with thinking about this is how does the story of the Bible begin and how does the story of the Bible end? All right, well, it's pretty easy. The story of the Bible begins in the beginning. That's how the Bible opens in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, so the story of the Bible begins with the creation of the world as we know it, the heavens and the earth, things around us, things above us. We also know that the Bible ends with what we sometimes refer to as the day of the Lord or the end of time. It's when God brings this world as we know it to a conclusion and his followers live with him in what we generally refer to as heaven. We go home to live with God. Now, it's interesting, this idea of home. 
I'm reading a book. I don't have it all read, but the idea of the authors, and it's a serious book. It's it's really fascinating. Is that that's the point that God is trying to to get people home with Him, and you can see that through the story of the Bible. You can see that in the little individual places in the Bible, but it's also true at the end because. The idea of heaven, that we, what we call heaven, is really a home in the New Jerusalem it's referred to in the Bible, or, or the holy city that comes down, and we will live in that house, that home, that world. We're not sure we know all that that means, but we're going to be there at home with the Lord because he will be the center of that city. So the beginning of the Bible's creation, the end is when God gathers all of his people together at, at a house he's preparing for us. And that's another thing Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's preparing a place for us, and we will go live with him forever. It's kind of a cool thing to think about the beginning is creation, the end is recreation. All right, so beginning and end, you got that? We kind of got that in mind. Okay, now what happens in between? Well, a lot of things happen in between. The question I began to ask myself was, what is the most significant things that happen in between? And of course, I would narrow that down to say, what is the most significant thing that happens between creation and the end of time or the day of the Lord or the time we go home to live with God? Well, the obvious answer to that becomes the arrival of Jesus on the scene. So we have the beginning and the end, and somewhere in the middle, perhaps you see it as the dividing line between beginning and end. Chronologically, I don't know whether where, where that will be, because we haven't seen when the end will come yet. But certainly in the story of the Bible, the coming of Jesus is pivotal. All right, so there's three things. Okay, beginning, end, Jesus. Arguably, Jesus is the point of the Bible. Arguably, yeah, very arguably. He is the one that makes all the difference. He is the one who is and was and is to come. He's the one that solves our problem. He's the one that will make the wrongs right in your life today and in everything one day. So Jesus becomes that pivotal figure in the Bible between creation and the day of the Lord, the end of time, all of us living at home in heaven with him. So we got three big things in our mind. All right. Now, if you want to, if you want to think about how they apply to your written Bible, you can remember this, the story of Jesus, it begins in what we call the New Testament. We have the Old Testament. Sometimes we refer to them as the Hebrew Scriptures. The New Testament, starting with Matthew and continuing on, you can look at your table of contents in your Bible and see that if you're not familiar with it. That's where the story of Jesus starts in Matthew. And it's told in four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we're not going to go very far with that. That's about enough for right now because we'll get distracted. There are other big events that I want to kind of connect together for us to help us understand that. And and so let's let's leave that where it is. We've got beginning, end. We've got pivotal point in the middle with the coming of Jesus. Well, Jesus came to solve a problem. He came to solve our problem, the problem, the problem of sin. 
So if, if there is a problem of sin, one of the important things that happened had to have been, how did that problem of sin become a problem? Well, that goes back to closer to creation. So if we, we have creation. God makes a perfect world. He puts Adam and Eve in the world. And yeah, you know what happens. He says you can have all the fruit from all these trees except one. And they said, well, we'll show you. God will have some from the one. And they did. And sin entered the world. And it created the problem that Jesus needed to come to solve. So Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They were exiled from the garden. God sent them out of the Garden of Eden, that perfect place he had made for them. He sent them out, but in the process of all of that, there was a promise of Messiah to come. It's really fascinating. Small mention of it, but huge, huge future event, at least future from the Garden of Eden. So Adam and Eve are out, they're exiled, and sin gets worse. Okay, so we've taken the big picture, beginning, end, and Jesus, and now sin has entered the world. To a large extent, what unfolds from there is God's moving heaven and earth, you could say, to bring about a solution to this problem of sin. Jesus solves the problem. That's why he's the pivotal person in the whole story. That's why in between the beginning and end, we look at Jesus as, well, that's the most important event. That's the essential event to solve the problem of sin that began in the garden. So then you look and you say, okay, what happened between sin and the coming of Jesus and the final resolution of sin? Well, a lot of things happened. And all of the things that happened are part of the bigger story of God preparing the world for the coming of Jesus and revealing himself to people. So let me just give you a few of the highlights of that as we go along. And then, of course, we have to think about what takes place after the, the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus. And we want to get to that a little bit too. So, so sin enters the world and things get worse. Uh, people seem to have an appetite for sin. I guess you've noticed that in our day too. And it gets worse and it gets so bad that God is sorry at what he sees and sorry that he's made people and sorry the world is in such a mess. And so he talks to a man named Noah and he says to Noah, build an ark. I'm going to destroy the world. I'm going to save you and your family. And in so many words, God says, I, I want to start over. And so you know the story. Noah builds the ark. Flood comes. Noah's family is saved in the ark. And you also know the story that no sooner has the ark landed and people have gotten out that we discover that sin was a stowaway on the ark. And sin remains a problem. God continues to work to resolve the problem. He chooses a man named Abram, later became Abraham through the process of covenant. And God begins to work through Abraham and his family his tribe, if you will, or tribes as they become, to reveal himself and to introduce and pave the way for the coming of Jesus. So Abraham enters into covenant with God. That's the covenant that I talk about all the time. There are more than one reference to covenant and different types of covenant in the Bible. 
the one that helps us most in terms of our relationship with God, at least it seems to me, is the covenant model that was introduced when God came to Abraham and, and he became Abraham's covenant partner. As a result of that covenant and the promise of God, God forms a people from Abraham. And we concentrate then on three men, Abraham, Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from Jacob come the 12 tribes of Israel that we later follow in some detail. So God begins his work to reveal himself to people through the people of Abraham, what became Israel, what became what we sometimes refer to as the Jewish nation. Well, things unfold, things develop, some good, some not so good. And God's people, the line of Abraham, finds themselves enslaved in Egypt. One of the pivotal stories of the Bible, particularly of the Hebrew scriptures, is the story of God getting his people out of Egypt. They're in slavery, trapped in Egypt. And the story of God delivering them from Egypt is really a salvation story. And so that becomes another key story. Creation, sin, flood, Abraham, now Exodus. Because God says to Pharaoh, let my people go so they can worship me. We see the beginning of Passover. It's where they cross the Red Sea. Remember the waters parted? A lot of people are familiar with that story. They go to Sinai where they re-up or reestablish how to get along with God in terms of covenant. But they end up having to spend 40 years in the wilderness. And they learn something about the consequences of sin and the sacrifices for sin. Well, after the 40 years, God raises up Joshua. They go into the promised land, and we follow a number of significant people along that. And this is a high-level overview. Remember, we're trying to look at the scope of the Bible, not all of the details. We can't get into all the details. We don't have the patience or the time. So Joshua led them in. We see the rise of prophets like Samuel. We see the people complaining about how they have it and they want a king and so reluctantly God grants them a king. We began to follow the story of of the people of God, the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the kings. First Saul and then David, then others. And through all of the history here we see a cycle of sin and repentance, of sin and repentance. There's a lot of up and down with the people. They do not continuously remain faithful to God. They violate the covenant, God corrects them, they repent, and God builds them up again. It culminates in, it got so bad that God said, I'm done, you're going into exile, and God gives his people to Nebuchadnezzar, and he takes the people into exile, destroys Jerusalem. They spend a lot of time in exile. Babylon is the focus of that, and part of that you can find in the book of Daniel, very important part. Well, they return from exile sometime, some years later, and rebuild, and they never again worship idols like they had done before. Exile leads to restoration. Same idea when Adam and Eve left the garden and God put them into exile from the Garden of Eden. He's working toward restoration. Period of time takes place. Jesus arrived. He's born in Bethlehem. We see Jesus teaching the people with authority and in a way they aren't expecting. We see Jesus enter into his passion with Palm Sunday, all of the events of Holy Week, 
particularly Good Friday when Jesus dies for the sins of the world, where he takes his place as a perfect human, but he accepts the responsibility for covenant violations and gives himself to death to pay the penalty for that so that people like us can live. And then we see resurrection. So we have the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's absolutely pivotal. Without resurrection, all of the Bible falls. It can't stand up except that Jesus came back to life after dying for us. Jesus returns to heaven. He ascends to the Father in a dramatic way. And all of his followers are left to carry on the work, the message of Jesus. Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. They wait until the day of Pentecost, an established feast day in the scriptures, going all the way back to the earliest days of of God's people. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, and the church is formed or born. We often think of Pentecost as the birthday of the church, a good way to think about it, important way to think about it, accurate way to think about it. And the church then begins to reach out to other people and invite them to follow Jesus, teaching them what Jesus said, and as Jesus commissioned, going through all the earth and making disciples for Jesus, making followers of Jesus, inviting people to follow Jesus. The church unfolds through the story of the church, and we've much of the what we call the New Testament is the story of the church, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, other letters that were written to the church, and then everything... Everything is fulfilled, brought to conclusion, described in the book of Revelation with the day of the Lord, or all of God's people being gathered home to be with him in heaven. And if you're out of breath or out of thinking, that's the big picture story. And I'm sure glad we got to it just in time to take a break. And we'll be back in a minute. You already know Genesis plus HOCL is your best defense against viruses. But did you also know it's the most powerful weapon for eliminating airborne mold too? Customers are raving about the Genesis Fogger's ability to tackle mold problems and the bad smells that go with them. And we all know mold is a hazard to your health. There's no airborne invader that Genesis can't handle. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. 
These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we had a whirlwind, didn't we, going through the story of the Bible all the way from creation to the end of time till the time God gathers us home. That's just a big picture. Perhaps you can find that useful as you try to piece then the other stories of the Bible into that. And, and we'll see. Maybe we'll revisit that and try to connect things within that larger framework. And to be sure, that's what we want to talk about now with one of the stories, one of the things from Jesus' life that helps us understand what Jesus was all about and what he was teaching us so that we would understand things. And we want to start with this idea of celebrity culture. I listened to a presentation by Leonard Sweet recently. It was from about a year ago, actually, and I had just come across it, and he talked about the difference between idols and icons. And he talked about the, the reality of celebrity culture in our day, and we do have celebrity culture in our day. I think that's pretty obvious. Most of us see that everywhere. A lot of focus on celebrities of all kinds. And what I want to give you is a lot from Leonard Sweet, and so I want to say that right up front that we should give credit to him. And I usually say when I use somebody else's information, somebody else's stuff this extensively. I always say to people, whatever good I'm about to give you, we'll give him credit for, we'll give Leonard Sweet credit for. If, if I mess it up, it's my fault. Or if you disagree with something, let's not blame Leonard Sweet. It's probably me not getting his ideas straight. But anyway, he talks about celebrity culture being a culture that traffics in idols. And yeah, we really do. We even have a television show called American Idol. We, we are fixated on this celebrity idea. Social media, a lot of people put their stuff out there so people will look at them and follow them. And people brag about how many people follow them on social media, the things they present. And people feel bad about their life sometimes because they think they don't have the life somebody else has. It's, there's an idle nature to that. Hey, come and look at me. Entertainment, of course, is all about the idea of an idol. Watch me act, watch me sing, watch me whatever I do for entertainment. And so we want idols to, to entertain us. Whether we should or we shouldn't is a different question, but we seem to want that in our world. Even in politics, there are idols. There are people that, that emerge as representatives of the people who lead movements. And so we begin to develop idols and we say, we like this one or we don't like that one. And it's more trafficking in idols. 
the media is the same way. And maybe you don't separate entertainment, politics, and media in your mind. I understand that. But all of the alphabet soup networks have their personalities. They have shows named after the personalities. And that's just part of this idea of a celebrity culture. One of the interesting things that, that Leonard Sweet talked about was that selfies are, selfies are part of this entertainment culture. You know, the selfie says, look at me, and we take selfies of ourselves and post them. Well, some of us do. I think I've taken one selfie of myself, and I didn't post it. I sent it to my daughter. But people take selfies a lot. They, they seem to think that's the right thing to do. And really... It plays right into this celebrity culture because selfie is vanity. It's a fixation on ourselves. Leonard Sweet tells the story of how this whole selfie idea was so pervasive that at the Cannes Film Festival, so many celebrities and media moguls were stopping on the red carpet to take selfies of themselves. They'd walk a little while and then they'd take another selfie. They'd walk a little while and take another selfie. It became so bad that there was a traffic jam on the red carpet because everybody was stopping to take selfies. And so finally, the people at that festival, and remember, these are, these are people that love to be in the limelight, taking all these selfies. Finally, the, the head of that festival said, oh, enough already. We've got to stop taking selfies on the red carpet. So they banned selfies on the red carpet. And the the president of the festival said, quote, a selfie is the ugliest picture of yourself ever taken, end of quote. Well, that could be. I've never been one that takes good pictures of myself. In fact, people don't take good pictures of me. Uh, It's just what do you have to work with? But you get the idea. He was saying to them, look, you don't need the selfie. You don't need that selfie. In response to that, little story, Leonard Sweet said, Jesus is the most unselfie person in the world. And I was thinking about that. I think that's probably true. He didn't intend to draw attention to himself. He drew attention to God. He wanted people to think beyond to bigger things. And he wasn't trying to make himself the center of attention. He was just trying to point people to getting right with God. And so in this idea of celebrity culture, what if we could become Jesus celebrities? What if we could actually not put ourselves out there, but put Jesus out there? And what if we thought of something like the Beatitudes as being Jesus celebrities? So, you know, the Beatitudes start out, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, the. And Leonard Sweet says, what if we thought of this as Jesus' celebrities are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus' celebrities are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus' celebrities are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus' celebrities are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Jesus' celebrities are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus' celebrities are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus' celebrities are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' celebrities are people who are reviled and persecuted. They're the kind of people that all kinds of evil are set against them. But Jesus' celebrities rejoice and are glad, for they recognize that their reward is great in heaven. For in the same way that people persecuted the prophets, they will persecute Jesus' celebrities. 
Well, that's a little bit of license taken from Matthew chapter 5. But what if we could be Jesus celebrities? Or, or put another way, what if we could see ourselves as icons rather than idols? And Leonard Sweet makes this differentiation, I thought it was very helpful and very insightful for us to think about the difference between icons and idols. Idols say, look at me, here I am. Icons are different. They say, look beyond me. Now, this idea of icons and idols is difficult for us. It's been a little difficult for me because I grew up in a church that was very careful to teach me that we didn't have idols before God. We just didn't. We stayed away from that, and that mattered. And they're right. It does matter. So when we begin to think about other religious traditions that use icons as part of their worship, many people that I grew up hearing would have said that they're making an idol of those. Well, you look a little deeper, and they really aren't, and I don't understand a great deal about that, but I think Leonard Sweet's definition helps us. An icon is different from an idol because an icon is designed to help me look beyond me. The cross could be considered an icon, and we don't venerate the cross. We venerate what it stands for. It causes us to look beyond that symbol of the cross to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It, it draws us in and beyond the symbol. It doesn't become an idol for us. It doesn't become something we worship. It's something that points us beyond itself. And so part of Leonard Sweet's challenge, and boy, it's been challenging to me as I've thought about it. I think it's a good challenge. When people ask you to be their God, can you point them away from yourself to the living God? You know, if you get a little notoriety in your life, can you point beyond yourself to God, or do you revel in being someone's idol? That's a a good challenge for us, don't you think? Leonard Sweet says icons operate in three ways. We look at the icon. We look through the icon to what is beyond it. And we look back from what is beyond it as though it's a mirror in which we see ourselves. So take the cross, for example. We look at the cross, we look beyond it because we know what it means, what it stands for, and then in light of the cross, we consider ourselves and how we live and what we stand for, what we value, our faithfulness to God. It's an important distinction. I thought it was a very helpful one. In a world of idols, can we be icons of Jesus? People traffic in icons all the time. We have all kinds of images everywhere. We have them on our phone. Can we be icons for Jesus so when people see us, they see beyond us? See, when I look at an icon on my phone, for example, maybe I want to check the weather. I see the icon for the weather app that I use, but I'm not interested in the icon. I'm interested in the information that's beyond that. And so I touch that icon to get beyond that to the functional software that gives me the temperature, maybe tells me when it's going to rain or if it is going to rain, tells me about the sunshine, tells me when the sun is going to rise in the morning and set in the evening, gives me all kinds of information. And so I'm not fixated on the icon. I go beyond that. I'm not fixated on on something being an idol. I want to understand what else is there. And in a world of 
idols, can we help people see what else is there? Can we be icons of Jesus? I don't think the answer is yes, we certainly can be, and we certainly want to be, don't you think? And so the Sermon on the Mount, which is where the Beatitudes are placed in the Scriptures, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount introduces us to the very important things that Jesus wanted us to know. And so it starts out with this Beatitudes section that we talked about being icons for Jesus, Jesus celebrities, and then it continues with some other interesting things that for some people are very familiar, for others it might be new, but it's really not terribly difficult to understand. So I'm going to read to us from Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 13. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version. It's the one I've been using to study from. I've found it very helpful and very useful. You use the Bible that you find helpful and useful that you will read or listen to. But here, after the Beatitudes, Jesus continues his teaching with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under the bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come, and this is Jesus speaking, just so you remember, I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that last little bit is really significant, and we want to make sure we get back to that. Because remember, the end of time, the end of the Bible story is that going home to be with God. It's gathering God and his people together in heaven. And here this last section says, I tell you, Jesus' words, very significant. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's going on here? What's going on? Well, some of it's pretty obvious. It's not really difficult for us. We can really make sense of a lot of it, and and so we want to go through and try to do just that so that we understand what God is saying to us. And it starts out in verse 13 with this very straightforward statement, you are the salt of the earth. Now, a lot of people would talk a lot about, about what the function of salt is, and it has a number of functions, but here apparently it's referring to taste because it's talking about taste and saltiness. And the rhetorical question is asked, um, if, if it's lost its taste, how can it be restored? And it's probably a reference to salt-like crystals that came from the what we call the Dead Sea. When the water was dried, there would be some salt left behind and some other salt-like crystals, and what wasn't salt was discarded and gotten rid of. 
And so the, the idea of, of Jesus saying, how can its saltiness be restored, is, is more of a rhetorical question than a, than a literal one. In fact, there was a, a rabbi in the first century, near the end of the first century, that was asked one time uh, how one could make saltless salt salty again. And his reply is a little icky, but I found it instructive. He replied that one should salt it with, in other words, the unsalty salt should be salted with the afterbirth of a mule. Well, since mules are sterile and they have no ability to give birth, they have no afterbirth. And what he was saying is, when you ask a stupid question, you receive a stupid answer. Real salt does not lose its saltiness. But if it did, what would you do to restore its salty flavor? Well, you can't. It's just worthless. So Jesus is saying to his people, you're valuable. You're the salt of the earth, and you need to function that way. You need to function like the salt of the earth. You need to give a fresh taste to the world around you. He talks about light. He talks about how it can be hidden. You have a role as being a light in the darkness of the world. He talks about a city that can't be hidden. Well, obviously, a city on a hill can't be hidden. We have a role that can't be hidden. He says we wouldn't put a lamp under a bushel basket, would we? Well, of course we wouldn't. We light a lamp so we can benefit from the light. And of course, some of us, if you're familiar with bushel baskets, at least the ones that I've seen, they would catch on fire. And that's not the idea at all. So just to make sure we understand, the text refers to a bushel basket in many English translations, but it's really any kind of a bowl or thing that would hide the light. The point is you wouldn't do that because you light the lamp because you want the light. Same way in those days when they had small oil lamps, they would put them on a lampstand so that the light would be more beneficial and they would see that. And so Jesus wants us to realize that we are to function like salt that adds a good flavor to food, like a light that helps people see. And we're supposed to let our light shine, verse 16, before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In other words, we're supposed to overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. That's what I meant when I said I'm involved in this stuff that takes me to the capital of Florida sometimes to testify before committees in support of legislation that will bring solutions to our children and help them have a better education. I'm trying to overcome evil with good. I'm trying to help be salt and light in the world around us. And I don't do that to say, hey, look at me, but I do that so that people, as Jesus says, will see what we're doing and give glory to God because what we do is for the glory of God. We want people to see what we do and understand that we're pointing them to God. So in that sense, I guess what we're saying is we want to be icons, not idols. Now, remember what we said about icons was an icon functions so that we see it, we see through it to something bigger than itself. And then we see that from that vantage point, we see ourselves in light of that which is bigger than ourselves. An idol just says, hey, look at me, I'm the big hotshot. But an icon, as we're using it here, points to God that says, God's really, and I mean this reverently, God is the hotshot. And so this imperative of being salt and light is not something we take lightly, not at all. 
it's something we understand that's our responsibility. So when you do a good deed in your neighborhood, I don't know what you might do as a good deed. Maybe you give your neighbor a ride someplace. Maybe you give your friend a ride someplace. Maybe you help your friend think through a difficult situation. You're doing a kindness for them of one kind or another. Um, I don't, I don't know what it might be, but we need to realize that our good deeds, maybe taking a meal to somebody who's been in the hospital, lots of things that Christians do are meant to be good deeds to point people beyond themselves to what God is and does and means and wants to mean to them. So we overcome evil with good by our good deeds, and we do our good deeds to be salt and light in the world so that people can see them and see God. I've been around the church a long time, and one of the things that always worries me is that people want to devalue what they can contribute by way of good deeds. They want to say, well, I can't do much, or I can't do anything, or I can't do that. And they all most always seem to say, that if God wants this to get done, he'll find a way to get it done. And God always seems to say, I want to get it done through you because I want you to be salt and light in the world. I want you to be an icon. I want you to be an example. I want you to be someone that people can see and see past you and what you do to see me and who I am. And that's called being a witness. That's called being salt and light in the world. And so we need to do that. That's an imperative for us. That's something we we must do. Now, Jesus goes on to say that, and he talks about these commandments, he talks about the law, and he says that, he talks about keeping them, not breaking them, and, and the dangers of doing that. And and he says that that it won't pass away. Not one little bit of the law will pass away until he comes. Now, just just by way of touching on this, before we get to the final thought, we live in a time when people, too many people, too many influential people are, are diminishing the value of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus did not diminish their value. He did not. And this verse right here tells us about it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. That's Matthew 5, 17. Don't let anybody persuade you to abolish the Old Testament. And then he goes on to make what's absolutely a a devastating statement, unless we understand it. And and I've been wrestling with this, and I, I believe God has helped us understand it. But he goes on to say, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes we have a wrong understanding of the Pharisees, but but truly uh, a historically correct understanding is that the Pharisees really did want to keep the law of God. They had their way of doing it, and they had some specific beliefs, and, and they and Jesus had some disagreements. But one of the things that we know is that the Pharisees tried to keep the law, and it mattered to them, and they didn't want to lose track of the law because it mattered to them. Well, we have to look at this whole thing and say, okay, now where do we go with all of that and that idea of the law and the 
the prophets and all of that that Jesus said he came to fulfill. What does that mean to us? Well, let's use the Apostle Paul as an example. Apostle Paul had described himself as being a very faithful Jewish man. Very faithful. He was one that people looked to as an example. He was zealous for what he believed. And we believe the Pharisees were zealous for what they believed. They were respected. And so Paul, talking about how he had been zealous and faithful as a Jewish man, said in Philippians chapter 3, beginning about verse 4 is where you want to look, he said, concerning his life as a Pharisee, he was a zealous one, and concerning the law, he was blameless. Now, we don't tend to think of someone being blameless as it relates to the law, but the Apostle Paul said, and maybe I should read that, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Jesus said that your righteousness needed to be greater than the Pharisees if you were going to be in the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean? He meant what Paul later said that the mystery of the gospel is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can try as hard as you want to find righteousness by alignment with the law, alignment with the covenant. We've talked a little bit about that. That's what Paul was talking about. He was aligned with the covenant because he was righteous. He kept the law. But Jesus says, that's not what I'm looking for. Your righteousness needs to exceed that. And Paul goes on to explain that that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is Christ in you? Make him the center of your life today. Spend this week talking to him about that and come back next week as a person whose life is centered in Jesus. And we'll talk some more then. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens.